Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Good to have been invited here. Sorry for the circumstance with Pastor Ron's uh, recovery from surgery, but uh, happy to help my old friend out. Often when I'm a guest pastor, I bring greetings from the seminary and on behalf of our president, Joe Maidenblick, but I think he was here last week, so I'm sure he brought his own greetings, so I'll just say hi uh, and leave it at that for today. We're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture this morning. They're related. We've got a shorter one from Malachi, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, and then we will go to Luke's gospel, also chapter 3. Hear then these words from the prophet Malachi, who says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as, day, as in days gone by, as in former years. Now Luke's Gospel at the third chapter where Luke writes, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain will be made low, every crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what should we do then? The crowds asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Oh, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. Well, the people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I then will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, and he'll burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, 
Herod added all these evil things to the others, and he locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, John was on a roll. For quite some time, he had been preaching a fiery message to all kinds of people and with splendid results. They came out in droves and responded to John with genuine fervor. That's quite amazing in that John was not exactly what anybody would call seeker-friendly. I mean, today, most churches want to welcome visitors, give them a warm greeting, enfold them. But that wasn't John the Baptist's style. He had too much fire in his belly to bother with what he might have uh, chalked up as just social niceties. And when the people came to him, John wasn't even adverse to sneering. Well, 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 here you all are trotting out to see me, but do you know what you look like to me? A bunch of slithering snakes fleeing a burning field. Who told you the fire was coming up behind you anyway? And probably not a few folks blanched, you know, they, they turned pale at such a greeting. And maybe some of them were, were saying things like, now you just, you just hold on there a moment, John. You can't talk to us that way. We're not pagans, you know. We're devout Jews, Abraham's children, people of the covenant. You can't talk that way to us. You save that kind of talk for the, for the Greeks and the Romans. But before they could get very far, John cut them off. Oh, oh, hush up, he, he would say. I've had enough to hear with your talk about Abraham's children, Abraham's children, Abraham's children. God isn't interested in your family tree. He wants you to be a living tree of faith right now, producing spiritual fruit. If God wanted motionless, non-productive people, he could create them out of these rocks. In fact, you people are not living examples of faith. You're more like marble statues, monuments to bygone people of faith, but dead as rock yourselves. Now, you might think that, that people uh, would uh, hear that kind of a greeting and just sort of flee away, perhaps in anger, head back home, but mostly that didn't happen. John was so fiercely effective that before the people even knew what they were doing, they'd blurt out, well, what should we do then? Oh, John got through to them, all right. He shook up not just untutored peasants, but also tax collectors, well-to-do folks, even strapping Roman soldiers. Just think of that. John made men uh, with helmets and, 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 and shields and spears, he made them quiver like scared children. And in every case, when people asked John for advice, he had something to say. He encouraged uh, generosity, honesty, fairness. He told tax collectors not to cook the books so as to line their own pockets. He told soldiers to, to stop shaking people down and coercing bribes. Basically, John told the people to be nice, to tell the truth, share. Who knows what the people thought, John would say. Perhaps they anticipated some heavy-duty admonitions to, to do spectacular ministry, like, like building a leprosy clinic or, or establishing a, a relief agency to, to help victims of famine. But no, John's advice was far simpler. Some years ago, uh, some of you may remember a best-selling book titled, Everything I Ever Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. 
It's a pretty simple little book, almost trite in some ways, but it made a good point, and that is that if we could just find grown-up ways to live out the kinder, kindergarten virtues of kindness and sharing, the world would be a better place. And so also with John the Baptist. People expected John to give them maybe graduate school-like spiritual direction so that they could all earn their religious PhDs. But instead, John took them back to kindergarten. John wasn't giving them spiritual PhDs. He was giving them spiritual ABCs. And it worked. John was on a roll. And it's difficult to know maybe just what was going through John's head as all of this was, was happening as his ministry progressed. But, you know, if he felt pretty good about the way God was using him, if his confidence level was rising steadily as he went uh, along, you could hardly blame him. It's not that John was getting cocky, but he had hit on a formula that clearly was working. And so the day came when John dared to take on even King Herod. Now, Luke is a little sketchy as to exactly how this came about, but clearly at some point John criticized Herod principally for having married uh, his sister-in-law, and it was precisely then that John's role came to an end. Now he had gone too far. Now he had criticized somebody who wasn't going to be cut to the quick. This time he upset the wrong man and suddenly found himself locked up in prison where he would remain for the rest of his life. But that last verse in our passage this morning, that wasn't the first time Herod was mentioned in this passage, was it? Uh, you know, if you ever have to be a scripture reader here in church, Luke 3 verse 1 is the kind of passage you hope you never get. Because for the second chapter in a row, Luke opened with a litany of then-current political leaders and lots of names of places. But at least with Luke 2, you know, we've had the advantage of, of hearing Quirinius pronounced at any number of Sunday school Christmas programs over the years. Luke 3, though, is less familiar, throwing in words like Traconitus and Lysanius, among others. All in all, it's a pretty elaborate historical setup. But if at first it seemed unnecessary, by the time you hit verses 19 and 20 in this passage, you realize that Luke included all those political names for a reason. And he wasn't merely fixing the date of John the Baptist's ministry. I mean, if I tell you that a certain event took place while Richard Nixon was president, well, then you'll know that whatever it is I'm talking about happened sometime between 1969 and 1974. And so also in Luke 3, uh, when Luke mentions these names from Tiberius Caesar on down, anybody uh, who was familiar with Roman history would know just when John's ministry happened. Uh, but that nod toward that era's political leaders, um, is, is not just a historical footnote for Luke. Now, it's Luke's way of reminding us that the gospel is not an isolated phenomenon that takes place over in a corner somewhere. Now, the gospel is not just a local reality, it's cosmic. Luke also quotes from us that passage from Isaiah, huh? 
But notice that in this prophecy, it doesn't say that just some valleys would be filled in or just a few mountains would be made low. He doesn't say that just a handful of people would see the salvation of God. No, he says every valley, every mountain, and all of humanity would be involved. All the crooked roads would be made straight. All the rough places would be smoothed out. And so if someone had said to John, hey, 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 don't concern yourself with Herod. He, he's too far away to bother with. Well, you sense that John would have been furious. John was not called by God to put on just a little sideshow on the banks of the Jordan River. John's job was to prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. All those high and mighty people listed in verse 1 of Luke 3, they are involved whether they know it or not. They were going to come under the lordship of Jesus whether they knew it or not, whether they liked it or not. And on this second Advent Sunday, here is a message that is rather bracing for also us to consider. Because today, too, there is resistance to the idea that the gospel has global implications. Oh, Christmas has become a widespread phenomenon, of, more, of course, but, but mostly just in the sense of, you know, generating generic happy spirits during the holiday season. Have good cheer and all that. You can even celebrate Christmas without reference to the gospel at all. I mean, people do that all the time. If you want Christmas to also be about some alleged Savior born in a barn 2,000 years ago, I mean, if that kind of story turns your crank, well, well and good, but leave the rest of us out of it. Thank you very much. So across the spectrum of society, it's acceptable if we Christians want to zero in on Jesus during the holidays, but we need to restrict the scope of that message. If it works for us, fine, but don't pretend it has anything to do with anybody else. If we stay in our little corner, we can say and believe pretty much anything we want. But the moment we stray, the second we suggest that Jesus is the Lord of every person everywhere, well, then the world might just turn on us. So long as John the Baptist restricted himself to teaching folks out in the middle of nowhere, he was fine. But John knew that the message of repentance had to apply to everybody, or else it applied to nobody. If the Christ whose way John was preparing could not speak to Herod's situation, then neither could it speak to any situation. Now the church has long insisted that John is an absolutely necessary character in the Advent drama. But so often even we in the church forget this. Even most Christians aren't sure that they want John around at Christmas. To echo also the Malachi passage we read, who can endure the day of his coming? But we don't want Christmas to be something that's hard to endure, do we? And so we generally don't put John on any Christmas cards. 
We have no John the Baptist Christmas tree ornaments. If Hallmark ever comes out with a John the Baptist keepsake ornament, I will drop faint dead away. No child usually plays John in the Christmas program, and, and he's nowhere to be seen on front yard manger displays, though Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph have been known to put in an appearance. John's too untidy. He's too dangerous for Christmas. I mean, invite John to your holiday party, and he'll probably spill eggnog all over your nice Persian rug as he flails his arms around, going on and on about repentance and all that. And yet by grace, God does bring us before John. And by grace, we are also able to hear his message and actually be comforted by the message that our lives, not just parts of our lives, but the totality of our lives, they really are engulfed by the goodness of God. And that's profoundly good news, isn't it? That we are engulfed by the goodness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. After all, and has perhaps been, has been true of maybe more Advents in history than not, our Advents of late and, and our Christmases of late have been celebrated under very cloudy skies, and I'm not referring to West Michigan meteorology. The COVID pandemic, huge political divisions in this country, war in Ukraine, mass shootings in this country about every week, in so many ways, the world does not look like it has already been visited by God's Christ. Ours is a tear-drenched Advent, a fearful Advent, an uncertain Advent. We, want, we wait to hope that Christ will Advent into our world a second time because that hope alone validates our celebrating his first Advent in Bethlehem. I mean, if Jesus isn't coming again, then what's the sense of celebrating his first arrival? And as we do this waiting, as we cling to this hope, we can be assured that God still has the whole world and the entirety of our lives in his hands. John the Baptist storms onto our Advent stage to say to us, do you wonder sometimes if God has the whole world in his hands? I'm here to tell you, he does. And the reason John was so direct, so uncompromising, so fierce, is he because he knew the Messiah whose way he was preparing. And he knew that that Messiah whose way he was preparing would be the answer for everything. Because ours is a harsh world. Do we really believe that the child born of Mary is who he says he is? That he is already now ruling the galaxies as Lord and King? That he's coming back to make all things new? Is God giving us enough grace to believe that every day? I believe he does give us that grace. And for all of his off-putting, fire-snorting ways, John the Baptist helps us embrace just such a wild and wonderful faith. We celebrate this Advent that Jesus came to redeem us. He came to save us and to save again not just bits and pieces of our lives, but the whole of them. 
Jesus came to address not just some of our nightmares, but all of them. He came to sacrifice himself, not just to give us a little bit of hope, but an eternal hope. What's that line from that old Christmas song? The hopes and fears of all the years are met tonight in thee. That's right. All the hopes, all the fears, all of it. And John helps us to see this today by bringing us face to face with sin, with reality, and with the Christ, with the Christ of God who alone can take care of all of it. Oh, we want John, we need John at Advent. To quote the great preacher Fred Craddock, John is the one in the Advent and Christmas drama who forces the moment of truth onto us. John brings us into direct contact with God, which is what everyone wants and what no one wants. Because when John barges into your life, he changes everything. John brings us the clarity of grace. To make that point in one of his sermons, Fred Craddock once told the story of a missionary family in China who were forced to leave the country shortly after the communists took over China. One day, a band of soldiers knocked on the front door and told this missionary, his wife, and their children that they had precisely two hours to pack up before they would be taken to the train station, and what's more, they would be permitted to take only 200 pounds of stuff with them. And so began two hours of family wrangling and bickering. I mean, what, what should they take? What about this vase? It's a family heirloom. We've got to take the vase. Well, maybe, but this typewriter is brand new. We're not going to leave that behind. And what about some books? Got to bring some books along. And so they, they went on and on like this, putting stuff on the bathroom scale and taking it off until they had a pile of possessions that weighed exactly 200 pounds. And at the prepared hour, the soldiers returned. Are you ready? Yes. Did you weigh everything? Yes. 200 pounds? Yes. 200 pounds on the dot. Did you weigh the kids? Um, no. Weigh the kids. And in an instant, the typewriter, the vase, the books, they all became trash, trash. They, they didn't mean anything compared to the surpassing value of the children. Sometimes we all face the moment of truth. Sometimes events crash into our lives in so shocking a way that we're forced to view all of life in a new light. Suddenly what had previously been a value comes to mean absolutely nothing. and Indeed, we're only too happy to leave it behind. That was the effect that John the Baptist had on all who listened to him. And yet still something within us says, oh goodness, aren't the holidays stressful enough without having to deal with this too yet? I mean, it's hard enough to steal ourselves to be around Aunt Bessie all Christmas Day. Do we have to let John in the door too? John's too shrill. If we let John in the door, he's, he's going to wake up the baby in the manger. But then again, if we do not or cannot tolerate John's uncompromising message that Christ is Lord of all, then that baby in the manger may as well go on sleeping forever and ever anyway. 
Because when that baby wakes up, we're not going to like what he has to say eventually either. If we don't like what John says, we won't like what his cousin Jesus will say. And then, well then, Christmas is over before it really ever began. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, thank you for your servant John. Thank you for calling him already when he was in his mother's Elizabeth's womb. Thank you for anointing him so powerfully with your Holy Spirit and for all the ways that he brought that spirit and that moment of truth, that moment of truth and grace and clarity to the people who heard him. And we pray, O oh Lord, that today, that that will include us, as we too, by your spirit and through your word, have come into contact with John. Bless us this day, O oh Lord. Bless us in this Advent season. Help us to remember your powerful message through Christ our Lord. Amen.